Open your Bibles to Philippians 2. That's where we'll be today. I want to make two apologies at the beginning. The one is that I woke up today and my son, Eden, woke us up just saying, dad, 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 for the first time. And I thought maybe I'm crazy, maybe it's just a sound until he said it to me like 50 times since. So if he's talking this whole time, I'm not going to tell him to shut up because I am so happy about that. And secondly, I apologize for the sweat. If I look like I just got out of a pool once I'm finished with this. But it's hot, so thank you guys for cuddling up close in here. We're in Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 to 18. So age, or sorry, Marissa is going to throw those up there. Here we go. Therefore, my dear friends, this is Paul writing, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I remember in seventh grade, learning about slavery, slavery like properly for the first time. And uh, of course I knew about it and some of the vague realities as a kid growing up, but I had no context whatsoever, no framework for its horror. And I remember walking into my seventh grade history class and we watched this movie uh, for the first time called Roots. And it's this uh, adaption of a book written about a young man who was sold to slavery in Africa and then put on a boat and shipped to America. And there's this forceful scene in the movie where the main character hangs by his wrists on this rope as a fellow black man whips him and a white slave driver says, your name is now Toby. I want to hear you say it. Your name is now Toby. Say it to me. And he says, my name is Kunta Kinte. My name is Kunta Kinte. And the scene just trudges on as he's continually whipped and stripped of his identity as Kunta Kinte until finally in a desperate breath, he says, my name is Toby. My name is Toby. And the rest of the story unfolds from that tragic climax to tell the story of Kunta Kinte and his descendants taking back their identity 
and enduring seven generations of slavery. And, and the, 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 the book and the movie is filled with these stories that Kunta passes along to his family that essentially say, this is who we are. Don't forget it. This is who we are. Whatever chains, whatever sufferings, whatever whips you face, this is who we are in all circumstances. And we will stand together until the glory of our freedom. Endure together. Fight together. Because we will see it through together. And the movie goes on, and they did. But it was seven long generations, seven generations before they saw or tasted any bit of freedom. And I was so encouraged and challenged this week as I thought of Paul writing to this community that he loves so deeply in, in Rome, in a Roman colony. And he's writing with this desperation and hope as he tells similar, like, enduring stories of Jesus and the stories of the children of God from slavery in Egypt through the desert in, you know, Israel, and then essentially the, the, the stories of the New Testament church themselves. And all the while, he's there under Roman persecution. He's in chains himself with no certainty of exactly what will happen next. And in, in essence, he's saying, my beloveds, this church, these people that I love, this is who we are. This is who Jesus is. Don't forget it. Stick together no matter what happens, no matter how much more faces you. Stand with one another and for one another, lest we lose our power. And when the world gets darker, shine even brighter. And so Paul tells the stories to his people to give them endurance, to persevere for the coming glory. But he has no clue when that will be or when that will happen. But I believe that the when to Paul is much less or far less important than that they are standing together on that day of glory when Christ returns. So we've been, you with me? We've been in a series through Philippians the last five or six weeks. And before I hop into the passage, I actually want to take a substantial amount of time tonight to retrace where we've been, because actually most of the series itself, we've been in this one long appeal, really the whole series, this one long appeal from Paul for peace and humility and unity within the Philippian church. And tonight actually kind of ends that um, appeal, if you will. And so I want to take some time just to remind us where we've been, kind of, you know, keep the Philippians uh, letter on our heart. So I want to begin first by just giving us like the, the cultural and the circumstantial context that Paul's writing into. So I have a slide for it. The first is we remember that Philippi, Philippi, is a Roman colony. And so the believers in Rome likely faced some sort of oppression, maybe from the Romans. We assume Paul says himself, or he at least refers to it as suffering. And the church 
uh, in Philippi are the people of God who refuse to confess that Caesar is Lord. And that was the proclamation of Rome. But instead, they profess that Jesus is Lord. And because of that, their lives were not to be modeled after the values of the Roman culture or any other earthly society for that matter. In fact, Paul calls it a a crooked and warped generation. But that the followers of Jesus will look so different amongst the culture of Rome that they will be like stars shining in the night sky. They themselves will be a brilliant spectacle amongst the dark world. The second is that there's clearly some sort of disunity in the Philippian church. Um, We do read later on, which we'll get to uh, in another sermon, uh, when Paul uh, addresses two women who are disagreeing, and he's basically telling them to figure it out. Um, But this whole, like leading up to this point, it is chock full of conversations of unity and humility. And I would say it's actually very safe to assume like, Paul's just basically calling out elephants in the room at this point, right? If, if I just start talking about something in circles and circles, you're probably going to be like, dude, I think you're talking about that. That's basically what's happening. Paul's like doing the classic, you know, tell me you love me without telling me you love me kind of thing. And so Paul gets a little more specific about it later. But from the beginning of Philippians, Paul is indirectly alluding to division amongst the Philippians that they need, that they need to work out for the sake of the mission that is on them as a church and as followers of Jesus. And then finally is this, we have to remember that these seven verses are not just an isolated verses. We can just open our Bibles and read, well, we can, but we would miss a lot of what's going on. First, we have to remember that he is writing to a church, to a people, to a collective of people, to a y'all. And Sam already aired it out, but I did go to a country concert last night because you can take the boy out of Kentucky, but you cannot take the Kentucky out of the boy. And it probably looked like I had a can of dip in my back pocket earlier, but I didn't. It was hair product, so, um, so I don't know that that's actually any better at all. So, <laughs> just throwing that one out there. He's writing collectively to, to a church like this. Um, and secondly, and so the, the, the essence of that is he's not writing to a person, a singular person. Often when we open the scriptures and we read them, it's like, I'm reading it to me, I'm reading it to me. But we miss a lot of what Paul's really getting at when we remember he was writing to a body like us. And just how we can't isolate it to a single person, we remember that these seven verses cannot be read without sensitivity to what Paul wrote before and what he will write after. We won't get to that one as much tonight, but these are not seven isolated verses. In fact, he begins this by saying, therefore. Now, this is like the corniest pastor thing ever, but I'm going to say it. Whenever you read, therefore, you must ask, what is it therefore? And that one always nauseates me. But my, my point is this, is that whenever you read, therefore, or for, which are actually both in this passage, it is like the author's way of just drawing an arrow to the direct 
context of what words they're about to speak or write over a community. And so that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Therefore, he's drawing an arrow to what we've been preaching on over these last few weeks throughout his appeal. And so Stu and myself and Sam and Hannah, who preached for the first time last weekend, and it was amazing, and it is every reason why I love Apprentice Sunday, they uh, basically taught on this. And what I want to do is just take a paragraph and a half, at least in my notes, and sum up the story of where we've been in the Philippians so far, so that if you haven't been here or if you've been on your phone, um, great. You will, be, it'll, you will catch right up. This, this is all the spoiler alerts in one. That was mean. I'm sorry. Um, okay, I'm going to take a sip. So if you've got your Bibles open, you'll see this throughout chapters one and two. I'm just going to basically summarize it. Paul calls the Philippians to live a life that's worthy to be called a gospel kind of life. One that actually reflects the good news. A life that doesn't strive to be the center of attention or always right or to be known, not to have more, but in fact the exact opposite. A life of humble service. Where we follow the example of Jesus living a life of service on our knees for the sake of others. And that in some mysterious way, like I don't even know, but in some mysterious way, as we're devoted to a life of humble service, and in Jesus' case, even a death on a cross, we're making a way for salvation for people who don't know God, who don't know the hope of Jesus, and who don't live this gospel life. And then like Sam and Hannah preached on last night that uh, in that kind of humility, that humble service, that just as Jesus was exalted in his obedience and humility, actually so will we be exalted. But it's not by societal status. It's not by notable positions above other people. It's not even by money. Our exaltation will be standing in the presence of God face to face. And as we stand with him on the day of Christ, we will not stand alone, but together as one unified church, a body of believers who have stood together against every force that's tried to distract us and lure us away and have awaited and pursued the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. That's where we've been so far in Philippians, all right? That is uh, that. So that's where we've been. That's where we're going to pick up. What I want to do tonight uh, in 15, 20, 15, 17 minutes is uh, basically just go through the three movements of this passage together. And I just want to seek together to understand, but more importantly, I want to seek to get it into our heart and our bones that we may be the kind of church that God is calling us through Paul to be. Got, uh, also, Marissa, I basically got like three slides for each section, so I have not talked to you. What's up? Hey. <clears throat> Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote uh, 
that just self-justification, self-justification and judging belong together, just as justification by grace and serving belong together. Self-justification and judging belong together, just as justification by grace and serving belong together. In essence, as Bonhoeffer is pondering the means or the how of salvation, he poses the great lie against the great truth. And I've emphasized the, that the great lie we will face as followers of Jesus is that in some sort of way, we could merit ourselves into a relationship, into the salvation of God. But it's just that. It is a lie. It is the great lie. But rather, the great gospel truth is that on no merit of our own, by nothing we've done, but actually by the grace of God, simply by his kindness and his forgiveness and the faith that's in our hearts to respond to that kind of God, we have been justified before God. That in any way, we've, like, we've been declared completely innocent of any way we've missed the mark of the kind of life that God intended for us, y'all, to live together. And so where and when we try to self-justify and, and essentially save ourselves in that matter, we judge others, right? Saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as them, or at least we're thinking that, or oh, they did that, I would actually never do that. And really, we just create divisions amongst the body. But on the other hand, where there is an awareness, like a, a community who understands the grace of God that has saved us, where that exudes in this community, so does serving. Because there's no finger pointing. There's no better Christians. There's no more holy Christians or people who are closer to God. It's Christians laying their life down for one another in community and in humility. And so simply said, the result of our salvation is this. At least from what I understand Paul saying here. That the result of allowing God to save us by his grace, no power of our own, is unified, humble servants on mission together to humbly serve. The result of our salvation is unified in this community, is unified, humble servants on mission to humbly serve. And so Paul and Bonhoeffer wrestle with this same truth that begins our passage in verse 12 to 13, which is up here right now. And there's a lot of ambiguity around this verse, around the, around the theology of the verse, but I really want to just stress the big points here. So, of course, Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, or my beloved, as some translations say. Uh, and, and he says, in essence, obey. Obey as Jesus obeyed, or obey Jesus, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and so we have to remember this isn't isolated, right? That therefore is pointing us to what Sam and Hannah preached on last week. That, that we remember the, the verses of Jesus' humility and obedience even to death on a cross. And so at the sake of being um, repetitive, which I guess Paul is honestly 
quite repetitive in this, he's encouraging us to work for unity in this community by avoiding any sort of selfish ambitions that would create divisions. What kind of selfish ambitions are in me or in you that would create divisions amongst here? Work at getting those out of our lives. That's what obedience like Jesus and obedience to Jesus looks like in community. And then Paul writes these grand words. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In essence, I think what Paul is doing here is, is, is not telling us how to get salvation from God. That would be bad theology. That would not be Paul's theology. I think it's probably more like he's telling us to get our stuff together. I think that's more what it's like in the context of, of the divisions and the disunity amongst anything going on in the Philippians. And so to the Philippians living in the Roman Empire who refused to call Caesar Lord, and I believe it would be fitting to say to Genesis, living in probably an equally idolatrous generation. But those who still boast in themselves and, and seemingly elevate themselves amongst one another, he's saying no. Guys, that's not, what you're, that's not the result of your salvation. And we've already talked about what that is. That is humility and obedience amongst this community like Jesus. But he's saying work out that salvation. Work it out. And really the, the word play, or at least like the, the roots of the words here, is the idea of like actually physically working out. In fact, later on uh, in, in this same passage, Paul refers to the way he's been working out his salvation uh, to the Philippians like running, running a race. And I think that it is a helpful way to think about working out our salvation, like thinking of training for a marathon, Right? We don't just show up to it. We give it everything we have. We train for it. We live the lifestyle of it. We, we buy the nicest clothes when we're running a 13-minute pace. It's what we do. And we practice its life, and we center everything about us around getting ready for that thing. And, and so is the same in working out our salvation. We live it up. We go for it with everything we've been given. But in the same breath, Paul says to work it out with fear and trembling. And please don't hear scared and timid here. That's not, that's not Paul's idea here. But I do believe that one of, one of the blatantly weak areas of our generation is a nonchalant kind of casual approach to our faith. To be honest, I really believe, and I'm not pointing fingers, I'm actually looking at none of you right now, um, that, that there is a, a lack of a sense of holy awe and wonder of God in our lives. That's, that's fear and trembling, holy awe of God and wonder. But it's often something we say, it's something that makes us a bit better as people. But Paul, 
he, he kind of qualifies this idea of working out our salvation like this. That it is God, it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's not on your own, it's not by your own will. And so you might think, you know, I have tried to, to want God with everything in me. I have tried to make my life all about Jesus. And I, I, if I'm just being honest, like I just don't have that holy awe and wonder about God in my life. Like the God who created me, the God who is with me, the God who wants to partner with me. I love that idea, but I just don't have it. And when I try to become that kind of person, I fall short and I get in these repetitive patterns of shame and guilt. And it's just every time it feels more exhausting and more impossible to me. And you maybe see people who you think just have such a beautiful relationship with the Lord and you wonder, how do they do that? And you see people who have this deep prayer life and you just think, I I love that. I, I want that but I just, I don't know if that could ever actually be me. I have most definitely and often faced that kind of moment in my life, but Paul encourages us that it is God who works in you to give you the will, to give you the want, and to, to act, to give you the power or whatever the heck you need to fulfill his good purposes. And so in other words, it's, it's God who creates in you the want. The, the, it's, he, it's him who, do, who, who raises a desire to do for him, and it's him who gives you whatever you need. I think of the guy, uh, the father in Mark 9, who uh, his son is in bondage to a demon. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And if that's you, maybe your prayer can simply be, God, I want to believe. Help me believe. Or God, I, I want to want you. Will you help me want you? Will you create that desire in me for more of you? I want to want you. And friends, the outworking of this kind of salvation in our community will not be pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and getting our act together. That's not what Paul's saying here. But it will be as a praying church who says, God, we want to want you at Genesis. Would you help us, all of us, those who feel like they're 10 steps down the road and those who feel they're 10 steps behind, will you help all of us have a deeper want for you? God, we want to be hum humble servants. Help us want that more. Give us whatever the heck we need to be your humble servants. We want unity in this church, God. Help us want it more. We want to be led into repentance and into purity and blamelessness. And we want to be faultless amongst the crooked generation. We want to shine like stars amongst a dark generation. Give us the want. Give us the way, Lord. Like that's, that is the invitation for you today to want to want. That's all God needs from you is to want to want. Our lives, our churches, this earth 
when they're filled by people who are asking God for, to give them the will, to, to give them the want, we're just bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, as he taught us to pray. That's how we respond to that pray, not just passively, but actively. And then all of this kind of furthers Paul's hearts in verses 14 to 16. You there? Okay, I, I, to be honest, kind of talked in circles there for a little bit. But Paul says, instead of, I'm trying not to use my notes so much, but that just leaves us all here a little longer. Instead of arguing and grumbling with each other, he's essentially saying, would you be known for your purity and blamelessness? And one theologian, who I forget his name, but he wrote the NIV application series, he says that grumbling and arguing breed disunity and they blur the effect of the gospel amongst us. Grumbling and arguing, they breed disunity. So already it's going to separate us. That's bad enough. But they also blur the effect from the outside in of what the gospel has actually done to change us, to change who we are, to make us a unified body of believers. And we've seen that a ton, right? Without a doubt, the most common objection I hear to Christianity is not Jesus. It's not Jesus. It's Christians who are meant to be the most accurate representation of Jesus in this earth. And we are called out as the very reason for others rejecting Jesus. Because our divisions have blurred the effects of the gospel amongst us. And so instead, Paul says, in a crooked and warped generation, and it seems to me that Paul's pointing to the Roman Empire, probably, but I would very much believe that he would also point to many of our allegiances to culture and politics and trends and friend groups and our casual approach to our faith. And he'd say, in a crooked and warped generation, may we be a people who live faultless lives as a testimony to the rest of the world. And Paul isn't telling us how to, like, follow a set of moral rules. I don't know where I'd really even find that in the New Testament. He's not telling us to follow a bunch of laws. It's, it's not just to make us better people. It's about humbly asking God to change our hearts from the inside out. It's about as a community, and pardon the metaphor here, but like asking God to move and mold our church from the bowels of this community. Like the depth of the depth, everything, all the way in, to hold firmly to Jesus, not casually or blase, but firmly to him, to be a people who like stars in the night sky bring light and life to everywhere and everyone. We're not just spectacles of goodness. We are partners in that to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And then Paul wraps up this appeal in verses 17 and 18. And he wraps up this appeal of humility and unity that we've you know, been in for so long to say like all of this, this kind of salvation that will be evident among our community this will be his great boast on the day of Christ. When Jesus returns, and even if he's labored and poured himself out like a drink offering, and he's ran and ran and ran, 
he will rejoice because he won't be standing before Jesus on that day by himself. But with the millennia of churches who have followed since. Because Paul believes, like, believes in a literal day where he will stand before Jesus. But he'll stand with us arm in arm as Jesus' prayer is finally answered that they may all be one, O-N-E, one. Like that we, the global church, would be one. And friends, that's the call of this appeal. That's the call of everything we've talked about so far in Philippians. That this call to humility and unity, encouraging us to work out our salvation and live like bright stars in a dark generation. It's, it's not just for the sake of moral obedience and being others while, you know, right while others are wrong or anything like that. He's saying, just like I've run this race, just like I've been poured out for the gospel so that you may know Jesus, so that you might have the gospel kind of life, you can go and do the same. And as you do the same by serving one another in humility and meeting the needs of this world by the power of God, you too can bring the life of Jesus and the power of Jesus to those around you just like I've done for you. And we will all rejoice and we will all celebrate on the day of Christ when Jesus returns and we look ahead and we see the millennia of faithful saints who have followed in the way of Jesus and the encouragement of Paul. And as we look back over our shoulder and we see the faithful saints by our example who followed in the way of Jesus. And by our encouragement, Paul is inviting us to that same moment where we'll stand face to face with Jesus and we'll have this joy of the life of salvation that we lived on earth and an even greater joy of the salvation and the presence of God that we will live in for all eternity. That's the appeal of Paul up to this point. And so I want to just wrap up our time uh, just in a couple ways that we can live this out, that we can respond to the call in Philippians 2. I want to offer you, as you find time this week, just in devotion to Jesus, however that looks, uh, quiet time in the scriptures, that you would find time to pray that, that kind of prayer that we've been alluding to this time. God, help me want to want you. I want to want you, help me want to want you. Or, or if there's something specifically that you feel he's calling you to, God, help me to want to do that. I want to partner with you, but I need more will in me. And then God, give me whatever the heck I need to be able to be faithful to what you've called me to. Secondly, is this practically, where can you be a humble servant amongst our community, amongst our city? Sam regularly uh, needs people to serve weekly, almost nightly, right? Uh, dinner to the homeless at the Crossing Church uh, just across the street. We need that regularly. Uh, regularly, we also deliver groceries to the elderly. Those are two ways that you can practice just humble service in this community. I wonder maybe even this week if it could just be a goal of yours to find out one need of your neighbor's. Like literally somebody in your neighborhood who you don't just like know on a regular basis. Could you find out what one of their need is? 
And maybe you can help meet it. Maybe some of us can help meet it. And then even in a third way, I want to encourage you like by being generous to the food you bring to your table community. Not just bringing your zucchini or like a sliced loaf of bread, like bringing something to nourish your friends and family. To say, I care about the life and the mission and everything that you're, dude, I know Johnny and Olivia were up pretty late with Cedar and Olivia's totally got the late night sickness and morning sickness, 20 weeks pregnant. You know, like how can you nourish people by just taking time out of your day to cook really good food for them? That's one of the things we actually believe is central to serving one another in this community. And then thirdly, I just, I would love you to consider how can you help mend unity amongst us? Where is the division? And then instead of complaining about it or making noise about it, how can you help mend it? What would it look like? I'll leave that to a time of prayer and uh, space for you and the spirit to convict you. But we're going to uh, celebrate the meal of communion together now. And um, Ben, you guys can come up as well. And then the home group who's serving us uh, this tonight. I mentioned earlier the arrows in the scripture that just point to the context of what this was all about. He's pointing to the death of Jesus, where his body was broken and his blood was spilled, that in some mysterious way, you and I would receive the justification that we talked about, the salvation that we get to live in on earth as it is in heaven. And in some way, throughout the almost two millennia of the church, the church has believed, like, it's a mystery, but Jesus is actually present in our, com- in our communion. A couple hundred years ago, we made it a symbol. For 1,500 years, we believed Jesus somehow was actually amongst us, like his real presence is here through the blessing of the sacraments. And I want to encourage you tonight, when you come up to receive this, you are literally coming to receive Jesus. It's a crazy, wacky thought we have as Christians, but it's something we believe, that his presence is literally here amongst us. And as you receive it, I do believe that the one thing we can bring to it is an honest and humble heart to say, God, I want to want you, but when I look at the reality of my life, it doesn't always look like that. And maybe I've been a cause for disunity or maybe I've been so offended by divisions in this community that I've not only blocked myself from other people, but from you. God, I want you to heal that. I want to receive whatever the healing power of this is to help me be a partner of your kingdom. And so we're not gonna take it all together tonight, but I'm gonna bless this and pray for the presence of God to be amongst us, to give us the will tonight, to want him in our lives, to give us the want for a unified community and a unified church and a unified life that shines like bright stars, not for myself, but to bring life to others.
And in the same way that he had the power to walk to the cross, to willingly give himself to it, God, would you give us that kind of power for whatever it is that you've called us to on earth? So Jesus, we invite you tonight through the bread and the wine to be present amongst us and move so far beyond our mind, so far beyond our current will. But like Eden, who said Dada for the first time today? Like there's just something so beautiful in the simplicity of just calling to you and saying your name and letting you embrace us and meet us here. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you showed us humble obedience. We thank you that we're not following a blind path or blind ideas, but we're following you and the encouragement of Paul and the saints who have gone before us that right here is the center of our gathering, Jesus. We love you.